Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us once again each and every week here on B'nai In all the ways that you might be watching, whether that's Facebook Live, our mobile app, or any one of our television apps, we thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week where we set apart the Sabbath, where we worship the Lord, and we hear from the Word of the Lord. Right now, it is February 21st, and uh, we are very excited. We're nine days away from opening our registration for the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, if you go to tabernaclesevent.com, you can register your family there, uh, where each and every year, many brethren from all over the nation come to Chandler, Oklahoma, to celebrate the appointed time. Um, registration for uh, fills up very quickly, especially for our RV sites, so we encourage you to uh, plan ahead and uh, plan on registering so that we can, you can join together with us, with this ministry, in celebrating that appointed time. We also have our registrations open for our Shavuot conference that's in Dallas. You can go to ShavuotEvent.com for information there. That'll take place at the end of May. And also for Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp, you can go to CampYeshua.com, register your youth there, and we're going to have another wonderful Messianic Youth Summer Camp on uh, August 2nd through the 9th. So once again, we thank you for being a part of this ministry. We hope that you plan on joining us for these events. And also, we once again thank you for uh, joining with us each Sabbath where we uh, celebrate the very first appointed time, the Sabbath with the Lord. Now, let us set apart this week's Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Chamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam Hamotzi lechem min haaretz Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. 
Baruch Adonai HaVarach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha Ba'elim Adonai Michamocha Nedahar Ba'chodesh Nohora Techilot Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-shabbat, la'asot et ha-shabbat, l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael othi le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aret v'yom ha-shavi shavat v'yinafash. All together, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechim ezavcha hayom alevavcha. 
Vashinan tam la venecha, vadebardabam beshiftacha, beyetacha, uvleftacha, vederech ushakbika, uvkumika, ukeshatam la oto yadecha, vaheu la totavolt binanecha, uketatama mazuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Yes, in that day. 
Please join us for the reading of Parashah Mishpatim, chapter 21. Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to Elohim. Then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. 
if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free, as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will do not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing, without payment of money. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but Elohim let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar, that he may die. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but he remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time, and take, shall take care of him until he is completely healed. If a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod, and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. If men struggle with each other, and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judge, judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner had been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give him for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Whether it gores a son or daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it over, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide its price equally, and they shall also divide the dead ox. Or if it is known that the ox was previously in the habit of goring, yet its owner has not confined it, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall become his. Chapter 22 if a man steals an ox or a sheep, and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox, and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in, and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. 
he shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain of the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before Adonai shall be made by the two of them, that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god other than to Adonai alone shall be utterly destroyed. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. You shall not curse Elohim, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Chapter 23 You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. 
Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you were also were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall sow your land for six years and gather its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard, and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the firstfruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year your male shall appear before Adonai Elohim. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of Adonai your Elohim. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amori, the Hitti, the Parisi, the Canani, the Hivi, and the Yabusi, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve Adonai your Elohim, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you, and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you, so that they will drive out the Hivi, the Canani, and the Hitti before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Chapter 24 Then he said to Moshe, Come up to Adonai, you and Aharon, Nadav and Avihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moshe alone, however, shall come near to Adonai, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moshe came and recounted to the people all the words of Adonai, and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice, and all said, All the words which Adonai has spoken we will do. Moshe wrote down all the words of Adonai. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. 
He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Adonai. Moshe took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that Adonai has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moshe took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which Adonai has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Then Moshe went up with Aharon, Nadav, and Avihu, and the seventy elders of Israel. And they saw the Elohim of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw Elohim, and they ate and drank. Now Adonai said to Moshe, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moshe arose with Yehoshua his servant, and Moshe went up to the mountain of Elohim. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aharon and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moshe went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of Adonai rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moshe from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of Adonai was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moshe entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moshe was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Right on the heels of having heard the Ten Commandments, we come to this week's readings labeled Mishpatim, which stands for Ordinances. These are the right rulings. These are the judgments. These are the ordinances. Depends upon which version you're reading from, that's how it reads. It's basically the instructions for fair treatment of your fellow. In fact, the interesting thing is, right on the heels of the Ten Commandments, we see the very first instruction after the, the way the altar is to be constructed is when you have a Hebrew slave. It talks about how to humanely treat those who are under your authority. It then talks about how to respect your parents, how to pay restitution if you have incurred uh, an injury or a loss, if you have caused these injuries or losses upon someone or if they've been incurred upon you, how to be a good steward when borrowing something from your neighbor. Uh, all these things are things that treat, tell us how to treat our fellow neighbor. What stands out, though, is chapter 21, verses 2 through 6, which says, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master my wife and my children. I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to Elohim. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. This is the law of the bond servant. When someone finds themselves destitute and in, in such a place financially that they have no choice but to sell themselves into slavery, when they come into that household, the household of their new master, and they serve that master, if that master is good to them and gives that man a wife 
And that wife bears children. And this man who is under the service of this master says, I love my master. I'm treated better here and I'm more successful here under his authority than I've ever been when I was calling the shots myself. Then he commits to his master to serve him all the days of his life and he becomes a bond servant. Now, this principle of the bond servant is carried on all throughout scripture. In fact, you're going to see if you take a look very closely that the authors of most of the New Testament writings call themselves bond servants. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, introduces himself as a bondservant. Likewise, Jacob, James, the brother of Yeshua, in James chapter 1, verse 1. Peter does the same in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, likewise, in Jude 1, verse 1. And even Moshe, as described in Revelation chapter 15, 3, as the bondservant of Adonai. All these men refer to themselves or are referred to as bondservants. We further see that Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. Adonai's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps Elohim may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. We further see a description of the bondservant in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, where it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Yeshua HaMashiach, who, although he existed in the form of Elohim, did not regard equality with Elohim a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have examples of the disciples, the the then apostles, describing themselves as bondservants, following in the footsteps of our master, the bondservant. We see that it's clearly defined that these bondservants are submitted to, to their master. These bondservants are submitted even to the point of pain and even death are submitted to their master. May we be known as people who strive to be bondservants. But in our being bondservants, may we heed the words of Paul and may we be kind and patient towards those with whom we come in contact, knowing that we've been set free from our debt and brought into new freedom in our master's house. And our master is a good and kind master. Shabbat Shalom. Lord, I'm here to teach the Hof Torah portion, the portion that follows the Torah portion. And with Mishpatim, we have a passage that is selected from Jeremiah, for the Hof Torah portion, Jeremiah uh, chapter 34. And you're going to instantly see why this passage has been selected to parallel Mishpatim. Um, and, and because the first commandment that is further explained after the Ten Commandments in our portion Mishpatim is about the law of the bondservant and uh, about the servant who serves 
uh, for seven years. And so this passage in Jeremiah is going to make reference to that law, and that's the reason why there's a parallel that's given to it. Jeremiah was a prophet to the people of Judah, and in fact, he's the first prophet whoever uses the term in Scripture referring to the people of the house of Judah as um, Jews. He's the very first person to use the biblical term Yehudi, which means Jews. And it, this is the first place. And he's um, going to be chastising uh, King Zedekiah and the princes of Judah for failing to honor the Lord, failing to do what the Lord asked of them. And he's setting the stage to explain why they're going to go into Babylonian captivity, why God will be using Babylon to come and judge the house of Judah. And as you know, historically, Jeremiah prophesied that and that they would be in captivity for 70 years. And that's what we have is the history of the house of Judah. They did go in captivity with the Babylonians. They were there 70 years. Ezekiel the prophet was there with them. Daniel the prophet was there with them. And the remnant of Judah then did return to the land after the 70 years of captivity. But this is now the time when Jeremiah is prophesying that such things are going to take place. And so he uses a particular commandment out of the portion of Mishpatim to say this is the reason why you're going to go into captivity. And it's very interesting. We're going to talk about this uh, somewhat, and that's the reason why this portion has been selected to go with Mishpatim. Let me begin reading for you Jeremiah chapter 34, beginning at verse 8. Here's what the scripture has to say for our portion. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release to them that each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, that so that no one should keep them, a Jew his brother, in bondage. And all the officials and all the people obeyed who had entered into the covenant that each man should set free his male servant and his, each man his female servant so that no one should keep them any longer in bondage. And they obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free and brought them into subjection for male servants and for female servants. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, At the end of every seven years, each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You shall send him out free from you. But your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me. And although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, you may you had made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. Yet you turned and profaned my name, and each man took back his male servant and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to your male servants and female servants. Therefore, thus says the Lord, 
You have not obeyed me in proclaiming release, each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant, which they have made before me, when they cut the calf in two and pass between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies shall be as food for the birds of the sky and beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and into the hand of the army of the kings of Babylon, which had gone away from you. Behold, I'm going to command, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. That's a pretty powerful declaration by Jeremiah, and essentially what had happened was this. Babylon had shown its power to the cities of Judah. Now, the cities of Judah were walled cities. They were able to defend themselves to a certain extent. Babylon was an emerging great power. And Babylon came and threatened the cities of Judah. Now, Judah and the king, they sought the Lord. They, they didn't want the problem with Babylon. And the Lord said, okay, here's the deal. I'll tell you what we'll do. If you'll release from bondage your Hebrew slaves that you have, your Hebrew servants, set them free. And really what he was asking to do, will you just follow the commandment that I've given to you for these? Because that was the problem. They weren't keeping the commandment the Lord, the Lord had given it. The way the Lord had given it was that when a Hebrew man is in debt, he can't pay his debt, he can sell himself into slavery. All he needs to do is find a a master who will take him for hire, and there was a set wage for this, and that would absolve his debt. But he was limited to only working for six years, and on the seventh year he's to be released. And oh, by the way, when he's released, he's supposed to be given some provision and so forth so that he can get on with his life. He doesn't start out destitute. He, he, he has something to get his life going again. Well, what was happening was people were being sold into slavery because they couldn't pay their debts and other kinds of things. But then the masters wouldn't release them. And they were keeping them. And it was continuing to perpetuate where you had a class of uh, where you had free men and masters and you had slaves and servants and you had this class thing. And God said, we understand that people can be in debt. We understand they have to pay their debts. Let's come up with a way to do this. But let's be reasonable and keep and, and maintain the integrity and the humanity and the dignity of our fellow brother um, intact so that there's a, a release. There's a release from this. Well, they weren't doing it. So what God said through the prophet says, look, if you'll make a covenant with you, if you'll renew that, you'll reestablish, you know, your citizens, reestablish, release all of these that have have done their duty, release them, and then uh, and we'll get on and I'll protect you from Babylon. Well, at first thought, it sounded like a good idea. 
they made a covenant. And in fact, uh, the way this covenant was made, it was very, he, he makes reference to it. It's the same kind of covenant that Abraham made with the Lord. Where he took an animal and he flayed it open, and then you walk between the two parts. They would make a, an agreement for it. And so they did that. They, made a, they took a, a, a calf, they split it apart, they flayed it open, they walked between the parts, they made an agreement with God. God says, very good. He tells the Babylonians, go home, don't worry, don't worry with these people. And then they turn around, and they keep it for a while, and they turn around and start enslaving the people again. And not following the commandment of the law of the bondservant, not following the provisions of the release on the seventh year. So the Lord says to him, okay, if you won't set free your servants and you're not going to allow them to, you're going to put them under bondage under you. Well, guess what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to do the same thing to you. I'm going to bring your enemies and they're going to put you under bondage. I'm, I'll release you to bondage by your enemies. You know, you, you, it, it's, you know, you as a man are mistreating your brother. So I'm going to let other men come in and mistreat you. And oppress you. You know, measure for measure. This is poetic justice. And so Jeremiah is pronouncing this incredible judgment upon Judah. And he's using as the principle this law of the bondservant. This law of the Hebrew slave. That comes from our Torah portion. Um, I want to take that whole teaching. And and we're just going to set it to the side for the moment. And I want to share with you something that exists in the world today so that you can kind of understand something that what God was trying to do with Hebrew slavery that a lot of people don't understand about what the law of the bondservant is about that most people don't understand. By the way, the law of the bondservant is something spoken of in the New Testament. I would remind everybody that the apostles would refer to themselves as being the bondservants of Yeshua the Messiah. In fact, Paul would start off many of his letters saying, Paul, a bondservant of Yeshua the Messiah, called an apostle. He makes the law of the bondservant, the title of him being a bondservant, more powerful than being called an apostle. So there's more to it than what most people Think about today, if you walk up to somebody and they mention something about being a bondservant, most people look at you and go, what? What what, what are you talking about? It's It's a very powerful law of God, but most people don't understand it. We're going to talk about that a little bit more so you can understand why would God focus on that to pronounce such a severe judgment upon the cities of Judah? That they breached that. What, what is so powerful about that that would cause God to use that as the measure of the judgment that would fall upon Judah? So let me just set all this aside and let me explain a couple of things to you that only people that are really kind of in the business world know about this. The reality is that when you go to uh, get a job, and you get hired by the boss, you know the boss at that point has become the master. You're the servant. You're the employee. You're the servant. Now, I know everybody doesn't like to use those terms, but the reality is, spiritually, that's what's going on. You have a boss who's your master, and you, the, the subordinate is the servant. And by the way, 
You have to do what the boss says. If you don't do what the boss says, you can get yourself fired. There can be a disciplinary action that comes as a result of it. By the way, you do not treat the boss with um, disrespect. If you do, you can get fired. There is clearly a leading dynamic in just normal employment. And by the way, the principles of Hebrew slavery are exactly the same principles that exist in the business world today of between a boss and a subordinate. The boss is to treat the subordinate with a measure of respect. He's an employee of the company. The company has benefits that goes with the compensation. You know, a lot of good companies, they will set up not only a benefits package, but a future retirement package for them that they can participate in. So if you work in a long term, you have something at the end of having spent the better part of your life or a big chunk of your life working at the, at the company. And they set up a structure where it's to your blessing and to your benefit. And of course, we're always looking for the fair wage. But the idea is it's supposed to work for everybody. The company's supposed to succeed. The employees are supposed to succeed. Well, that was Hebrew slavery. Hebrew slavery was, I understand you got yourself into a spot of trouble. Can't pay the deals. Okay, well, this is, this is the provision for, like, for bankruptcy. You declare yourself as bankrupt. Then you submit yourself to it, and you become the servant to a master, and he pays you a certain wage. He covers your expenses. By the way, if you have a family, they get taken care of, too. And by the way, but there's an end date where you're released. Now, the law of the bondservant said, you get to at the end, you can make a choice. If you don't want to leave and you've decided, hey, I've been working here for six years. I like it here. I want to stay here. And if the master agrees with you, well, then there's a provision for you go down to the elders of the city. You go to the gate of the city and you get your ear pierced. And you make a public proclamation, I love my master, I love my wife and my children, the master has given to me and provided for me, and so forth. And for the reason of love, I will not go as a free man anymore. I will remain as a servant here and I will stay with this guy. Now, there's a modification in the New Testament the Messiah gave to this. He said, the bond servants of him don't get your ear pierced uh, down by the elders of the city, but you do have to make a proclamation, and it goes something like this. I love my master, the Lord, who's given me my wife and my children. I love my wife and my children. I also love the brethren of the master. And for the reason of love, I will not go out as a free man any longer. I commit my life. To the service of the master. That's the law of the bondservant. And when Paul and John and Peter and others referred to themselves as the bondservants of Yeshua the Messiah, they had publicly made such a declaration. And even though their ears weren't pierced, the sign that they had done this was the love of the brethren. And by the way, we have been called to that. Did you know that? We ourselves have been called to consider making ourselves to be a bondservant of the Lord. You see, every one of us have been in debt. Every one of us have been in debt to sin. The Messiah comes in and forgives you of your sin, makes you a free man. You were a servant to sin, a slave to sin. Now you're a free man. 
You've been released from your sin, from all of the harm from it. But some make the decision, I like this master. I like what this master, I would like to live in his house forever. I want to commit to him forever, my whole life, my family's life. This is what I want to do. So you make a public profession of that you want to be God's servant. You want to be the servant of the Messiah for the rest of your life. It's based on you love the master, you love your wife and your children, the master is given to you. You love the brethren of the master for the reason of love, I will not go out as a free man anymore. And then the mark that you've become that bondservant is how you love the brethren. The apostles did this. And this is a very much desired title, and I'm going to explain to you why. Now, having made that comparison, let's talk about the business world. Okay, so we have a boss and we have a subordinate. Now, as you know, within companies... Uh, there's different levels of, of bosses. For example, uh, you may have the first level, maybe a supervisor. And he supervises some employees, and he has a boss. Maybe he has a department manager over him. And the department manager, maybe he answers to a director or, or another, uh, another manager, maybe a vice president, and maybe there's a general manager up above him, and maybe even above them, there's the corporate managers, and there's the chief executive officer and chief operating officer. And, and, and in other words, there's a structure. And each time you rise up, while you may have authority over others, while you have authority over others, you are under authority of someone else still. In fact, when you get all the way to the level of the CEO, he's under the authority of the stockholders, the owners of the company, he's got to give answer to them. Everybody gives answer to somebody. Everybody is under authority. So you understand that structure. But let me tell you about another position that is in the company that most people don't really recognize. It's kind of hidden, but it's definitely there. You see, each one of those bosses and managers as they go up, they, in fact, the higher you go, you have people that work in the same office that are called his staff. So you're on staff. The President of the United States has a lot of people that are on staff that work for the President. They're not the President, but they work for the President, and they work right at the White House, too. And bosses and companies, they have staff and assistants for them. Now, in the course of my professional career, I got a chance to really kind of see how all this stuff works. And let me just tell you what was my experience and what I learned out of it. When I first was an engineer working in a company, I started working on a program and I was a member of the program team. I was a technical person on the team. But very shortly thereafter, they gave me a new assignment. And rather than just doing, I was still doing my technical work, but they assigned me to be on the staff of one of the managers, one of the big managers in the program. And suddenly, even though my name was Monty Judah, and I worked for this particular company that had sold my service to it, when I would go out into the program, when I was introduced to other people in the program, they would say, who's that guy? They were referring to me. They'd say, oh, that, is, that fella is on staff to Don Thompson. 
who's the senior logistics engineer on the program. You know, when I would go into a meeting, you know how much authority I had to speak? I spoke for Don Thompson, the senior logistics engineer in the entire program. They didn't see me as Monty Judy anymore. They didn't see me as the guy that was working for the company I worked for. They saw me as I represented that man. And I had the authority of his office. Let me tell you how much authority his office had. He had more authority than the program managers of the companies had. In fact, there was a little dispute in my company about my role, what I was in my own staff, in my own company, fellow employees. They got a little bit of a rub. They didn't like some of the things I was doing. And they thought that I was being disloyal. They thought I was being inappropriate. I wasn't doing the right thing. In fact, one guy, he argued with me, and he said, Monty, who signs your paycheck? That's who you really work for. Well, to a certain extent, that's true, that, that there is some truth in that. So they decided to haul me in before the big boss of my company. And by the way, the big boss of my company was a senior vice president who had been at the company for many years, and literally, he walked in the clouds, man. As far as I was concerned, I mean, he was way the heck up there and um, commanded tremendous respect. Everybody spoke of him in a highly respectful manner. And I, I got hauled in before him with these guys complaining about my job performance, that I was favoring this other company and this other guy I had been assigned to. And I was doing, quote, my job too good for them. And to the harm of my own company. And I wasn't rendering the proper respect back to my own company and my own fellow employees and fellow managers and so forth. I thought I had really messed up. I thought I was in deep trouble. I thought it was going to be more than being taken to woodshed. I thought maybe I was, you know, this might be it for me here. I've done messed up my job and, and, and so forth. So the, all the accusations were laid out. And then this senior manager said, uh, fellas, I think you've misunderstood something. I said, we sold Monty over to this company. By the way, the company was IBM. We sold him to IBM and to this person to be his aide and to assist him in running the program. And that guy runs the program. By the way, if that guy says... He doesn't like what we're doing. We can be the whole company can be fired immediately. That's how much authority he has. We can be kicked off the contract just like that. That's how much power he has. And he said, Monty's job is to go over there and represent that gentleman and his office. And if that means that Monty, even though he's an employee of this company, comes walking back in here and he says, this company is going to do the following things on this program. He's not speaking as Monty anymore. He's not speaking as being an employee of this company. He is speaking for the office that he represents, that he's on staff to. And we will do whatever Monty says. Any questions? That was when I learned... The authority that you have when you become the servant of a man and his office. 
When God calls us to be a bondservant of him, most of us think, well, we have to do whatever the Lord says. No, that's not what that means. Do we do what the master wants? Yes. Why do we do it? Out of love. We are energized to do it. Not because we're forced to do it. Not because it's compulsive that we have to do it. We do it because that's what we want to do. And we've been given an opportunity to serve there. But you know what? When we speak, we speak with the authority of our master. Did you know that as believers... By being the servant of God, that you can speak to other men in this world with the authority of God. In fact, the proper way to teach, the proper way to teach is to speak by the Spirit and in demonstration of the power of God. That's what Yeshua came and did. You, you heard Ephraim read that portion where he taught the law, and the people stood back and they said, Man, this, speaks, this man speaks as like one who has authority and not like the scribes. Paul made reference to the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 2, he said, When I came to you, the Corinthians, he said, I did not come to you using fancy words and demonstration of man's wisdom. No, I came to you in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of God. I came speaking to you with the authority of God. Not my authority, not my ideas, what God says. That's what I came and spoke to you at. He was a bondservant of Yeshua the Messiah. His authority did not come from being an apostle. That's the work. His authority came because he's the servant of God and he's operating in the office of God just like I was the servant to that man and I operated in the authority of his office. It wasn't me anymore. And when I would go out to these subcontractors and other companies, when I spoke and I said, this is what we need to have happen in this program, you know what? That suddenly was the contract. And by the way, if you fail to comply, you will suffer the penalty for failing to do what the contract calls for. And I'm the guy that verbally explains, this is how you apply the contract in this program for you. And they would have to follow my instructions. We later had a dispute with another company in which that other company got, did get themselves in trouble. And I was the guy who had to call my boss and say, hey, this company um, is in trouble. They are failing. They're, they're, they're not accomplishing what you purchased from them. And on my word and on my opinion, there were several reviews that were canceled and all kinds of people had to come together to resolve the matter. And I was in the midst of the thick of it, standing up in the midst of many engineers and many managers and major corporations. And this was IBM and their subcontractor. Now, I'm a completely different guy. But I'm speaking in the office of the IBM and the authority of IBM to explain that they've messed up. And I saw how that was resolved, and I saw how much authority I had. Now, the company that messed up when we got it all resolved, their respect of me and their understanding of who I was as a servant of IBM 
impressed them so much that from that day forward, every time I went to that company and had to visit them, you know how you walk in the lobby of a company? They were anticipating my arrival. My name is in the marquee. Welcome, Monty Judah. And immediately the front desk would call the program office to send somebody from the program office down to escort me, to take me to a reserved office and a reserved conference room for me. Is there anything they could do for me while I'm there with their company visiting to check up on things? Is there anything? They wanted to take me to dinner and all kinds of stuff. They wanted to make sure I was taking care of me. You know why? Because I wasn't Monty Judy anymore. I represented the authority of a whole lot of other things. That's what we call a staff position, a personal servant position. I'm not in the line management. This is where you speak for the authority of the office of the servant you are. When God commissioned the idea of Hebrew slavery, here's basically the way it used to work. So you submit yourself to be a servant of this man because you're in debt. Okay, great. He's going to take care of you. Did you know from that moment on you were equivalent to one of his children? He had to care for you in the same manner, for you and your family, in the same manner he would care for his own children. Now, here you are, an adult man, and so forth. And when you would go about doing the business of your master, did you know how the rest of the community would regard you? The rest of the community didn't see you as an individual anymore, as a free man. They saw that you represented your master, that you spoke with the authority. And if your master, by the way, was a well-to-do man, had wealth, had, had power and prestige, and so you operated in that same thing. You would get in trouble with the master if you abused that or disrespected him. But you were, but other people were expected to honor you and respect you as though you were an emissary, you were an ambassador, you represented that master. And by the way, that's how the system used to work. Now that's not slavery like we think of oppressive slavery. That's more in line with professionalism and how people would work correctly. Hebrew slavery was never set up to oppress people. It was set up to make the system work in a much more effective way. And it was simply a way to handle. But some people would get into it and they would love it. And they say, hey, I'm being successful. This is good for me, for my life. I want to be the servant of. And I know a lot of guys, they join a company. I love this company. I want to stay here and work here. It's providing for me. And, and this is the structure I like. And, and even though that guy's going to be my boss and my master for you know, most of my life, I still want to do it. But there was also a moment of release. And by the way, the release that we have in the professional world is you can quit anytime you want. Unless you were a manager like me, where they would put you on the golden handcuffs. <laughs> Let me explain what that is. For example, when I came into the companies and I would go to work, they would, they would give me a forgivable loan. They'd, they'd give me a bonus right off the bat for joining the company. I went into some companies and they gave me 10000 bucks Right off the bat, just for coming to work. Wouldn't you like to have a job like that? Mm-hmm. However, it was in the structure of a forgivable loan that every year you work there, one-third of that amount is forgiven. If you don't work there the full amount, then it's considered to be a loan in which that is considered income, and you've got to pay taxes on it and other kinds of things, and you'll have to pay it back. 
So for the next three years, you got to stay there so you can completely get that, you know, like it was given as a gift. you got to stay there for three years. You know how they lock other managers in for even longer term? They issue stock options. Oh, there was some promotions I got. They didn't give me additional cash. They gave me a stock option, 4,000 shares on option. Five years. I get the whole 4,000 shares if I stay five years. I get 1,000 shares every year that I stay. Okay, the first year don't count, but the second year I get a thousand shares. And it was a way of kind of entrapping you and keeping you because they wanted to keep me there working, but they didn't oppress me. They rewarded me. Well, that, that's what the Lord does with you. He says, hey, follow me, encourage me, you know, stay with me. And by the way, I'll give you more blessings. And it kind of, quote, entraps you in the goodness. <laughs> Now, is that oppressive slavery? Is that masters lording it over? No, that's not at all. That's, that's, that's good stuff. What was Judah doing to their fellow Hebrew brethren? Not that. They were really oppressing them. They were really hurting the people. And the Lord saw it as inhumanity. He didn't see it as, you're following my commandment. If you're following my commandment, everybody would increase. Everybody would do good. When he saw the oppression, he said, hey, release everybody. They said, okay. So they released everybody. He said, good. That's a good start. Let's start over again. Well, they started over, and they went right back to the same thing. And he said, oh, well, if that's the way you're going to behave, and you're going to press, put other people in bondage, I'll put you in bondage. That was the judgment that came from it. A lot of people don't quite understand how powerful it is, the position for you to be, like in the case of me, with my boss being on staff. They don't realize that when you go on staff with somebody, you have the authority of the entire office. You now speak for that guy to other people. And if other people don't respond to you and the authority that you have, they get in deep trouble. It's like they disregarded the guy to begin with because they disregarded his servant. This is the way the law of the bondservant works. If I'm the bondservant of Yeshua and you come up and you take issue with me, you don't have to worry about me. You don't have to worry about me coming back and taking issue with you. you got bigger problems than me because you just offended my master. And my master is going to come after you. Now, a lot of people don't realize this. If you're a bondservant of Yeshua and somebody does harm to you, oh, my goodness, they might as well have done it to him. Does not the Lord say that you should be careful about offending people? Don't you realize that if you offend these little ones, you've offended me? The Lord has taught that. And that's the way being a servant really works. If, if you come, let's take the ministry. If you come and you work at this ministry and you become my servant to help me with the ministry, if somebody offends you while you're performing your duties here, do you know that that person didn't offend that person, that, that person offended me? You offended this organization. And by the way, you will answer to me, not him. I will have to do with you. And the same thing is true with the Lord and his servants. To be the servant of the Lord, 
quite honestly, is a more powerful position than even the line managers that's in the organization. The named positions. And by the way, in the faith, it works the same way. To be the bondservant of Yeshua has more authority than to be an apostle, a pastor, a preacher, or a teacher. Has more authority than that. Because you represent the master. And you have the authority of the master in the fulfillment of your duties. And when you go to minister, you have his authority to minister. That's the reason why when we go out and minister, we can cast out demons. Not my authority. Authority of my master. That's when I go and speak into the heart of a person. I can speak by the spirit and by the power of God into the person. It's not me. Believe me. Let me tell you, Monty, that's nice a guy as the end. I can't make anything happen. But the master I serve, he can make a lot of stuff happen. And so when I go and represent him, I can speak with that authority and things happen. So the one thing I want to leave you with from this Torah portion is this law about the bondservant. This law about Hebrew slavery, there is a reason why it is the first commandment that is taught after giving the Ten Commandments. There's a reason for it. It happens to be a very powerful law and a very powerful part of the kingdom of God. And that's the reason why Jeremiah explained to the house of Judah the reason why you are going to get punished and go into the hands of your captives, the Babylonians, is because you have offended this, this law that God established. You are treating people inhumanely when you should be sanctifying my name. And by the way, that's the way God views inhumanity, as profaning his name. Profaning the creator. God created all of us. I don't care who you are. I don't, if you're a human being and you are oppressed by another people, you have profaned the name of the creator. You think the creator doesn't have something to say about this? You think there's not a judgment that will come from the creator upon you because you offended other human beings? I have news for you. All of the travesty, all of the destruction, all the harm we see going on in the world. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Wait till God decides to have his judgment. They will not win. All they've done is brought massive judgment upon themselves from a very righteous very upset and angry creator God who has every right to judge them. That's the reason why at the day of the Lord, you and I are going to shout out, just and true are your judgments, O Lord. Just and true are your judgments at the day of the Lord. There won't be any cheering We'll just be recognizing that God's doing the right thing. So that's our Torah portion. And that's our Hoftor portion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
your many blessings and thank you for your instructions. And Lord, would you help us to gain the vision of what your idea of servanthood and bond servants is all about? Would you help us to understand the very high position that you called us to, to be your servants? That we would understand how to operate in your authority, not in our authority. That we would be good servants for you, Lord. And we would see the honor and esteem and life that comes from that. We ask all of that in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, to chapter 5, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And as always, let me turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we uh, once again can come together, joining together with many brethren across the nation here through this broadcast, and for this Sabbath and this time that we uh, dig into your word, your instruction. Father, I pray that it would come alive and be powerful uh, once again to us, ministering to us in our most holy faith. We thank you once again for this time together. In Yeshua's name, amen. Our Torah portion this week, uh, as it's already been uh, read for our uh, broadcast, is Mishpatim, which is the portion that immediately follows the Ten Commandments and is all of the additional commandments that follow that are trying to teach the children of Israel how to live according to the rule of law within the community of Israel and in obedience to the Word of God. Our Torah portion, Mishpatim, uh, means uh, ordinances or judgments. In fact, it shares the same Hebrew root word as uh, shoftim, which is the plural word for judges, and the singular word mishpat and shafat uh, all share the same root word, meaning judging or judgments. Now, when we look at this, we are understanding that the administration of justice comes from judges, Judges that look at the law, know what the law is, and then righteously choose uh, what is the right judgment from one matter or one case to another. And in our Torah portion, it describes some of these things. It talks about judges being uh, in place to judge on certain matters. What's the value of one thing versus another? One of the most fascinating things about our Torah portion that I love bringing out is that our, in our Torah portion of Mishpatim is the only place in all of the Torah that the Hebrew word Elohim, which is normally translated as God, is actually translated as judges, as a judge. And it's several times in our Torah portion that the term judge is actually translated Elohim. And I love the parallel to the idea that God is our judge. God is the righteous judge. Now, we have an understanding that within a community, we have to appoint men to make some of these judgments and these determinations. And what we are instructed to do, of course, is to find righteous men, righteous judges that would determine all of these things and these factors. But let us always remember, of course, that it is God who is the righteous judge. And that in some cases, we have to look to God's judgment in certain matters rather than the judgment, perhaps, of man, who always seems to have a bias in some, for some way, some form or fashion. And so we have to strike this balance understanding that God is the righteous judge, yet we still have to work and live within a community, getting along with one another, obeying certain laws. And those, some of the laws that are in this Torah portion, of course, 
are very, uh, they're very logical. They make a lot of sense. You will have the laws specifically outlining, once again, not to murder. What's the difference between manslaughter and murder? What's, what is negligent homicide? Where it's, when it's talking about that you loan your ox to a neighbor and that you know that this ox is dangerous. And yet if you don't warn your neighbor or don't say anything to your neighbor and then the, the harm comes, that falls on you for not understanding or not uh, sharing the knowledge that this ox or this thing you just loaned to, the, to your neighbor has the possibility of harming the user. And so there's all these different uh, laws that are given for us in this Torah portion that are all logical in the course and the sake of working within a community. But once again, we are talking about the Lord is the one who brings forth these judgments and that not every uh, issue that you might run into life is going to be answered with these laws and with these commandments that come from the book of Exodus. In fact, sometimes there's going to have to be judges and there's going to have to be the Lord is going to have to intervene on some of these matters. Let me first by saying this quote here in John 7, 24, it says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This is the balance that is, it's the same testimony that was given of Abraham, that the reason why Abraham was uh, the friend of God and why God chose Abraham as the man that he entered into covenant with and through his relationship with Abraham, all other covenant relationships with man is patterned after that one is that Abraham's testimony was that he made righteous judgments and that the Messiah himself specifically says and references that, that when you make a judgment, do not judge according to appearance what you might see and what might be on the outside, but make righteous judgment because sometimes what you see on the outside is not what is the heart and the intent of something on the inside. The phrase, don't judge a book by its cover absolutely has a has a biblical standard to it in the fact that the Messiah himself said, do not judge by appearance. So with that as a precursor, now looking at Matthew chapter 5, which I've described before is that Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are the greatest Torah portion, Torah teaching that has ever taken place on the Mount of Beatitudes, on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, by which the uh, Messiah gave these words is that he was teaching the commandments. He was teaching Moses. Now, was he teaching against Moses? Absolutely not. He was teaching in a way that filled up full of meaning what the commandments were. We already talked about uh, last week, talking about you shall not commit murder. And Messiah said in Matthew 5, and 20, verse 21, you've heard it said you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you do it in your heart, if you think it, if you intend to do it, even without committing the action, you have committed the sin internally within yourself. That the Messiah is pointing out that there is more to Torah than just the physical commandments being executed to the letter of the law with precision and accuracy. It's more, there's more to it than that. And specifically, he addresses some of these commandments. And then one that comes from our Torah portion here, and many people have heard this before, even people who don't know exactly what part of the Bible it's from, have heard the phrase, eye for eye or tooth for tooth, or whatever, it, when it says, and, and that is a commandment that comes from our Torah portion, specifically when it says that when harm comes to somebody, and that you now need a, you need a judge to preside over what is the equal value or payment for 
what the harm that was done, then you use the term or the phrase eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, the understanding of that always was not that if somebody uh, caused damage or harm to somebody's eye, that you then cause the harm back to your eye. But no, for a judge to make a righteous judgment to determine the assess the value of that harm and that that is the part that needs to be repaid or needs to be returned back. And so the scripture, the Torah portion gives us this idea that justice can be served. If some harm comes to me, then I can go to a judge and I'm going to get equal value for well, the harm that came to me. Something that's equal so that everything is all fair and everything's square between me and my brother. This was the understanding of what eye for eye means. However, the Messiah chimed in on this once again on the Sermon on the Mount at verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5. And he brings out something that is deeper, greater than just the trying to get what's equal or what's fair. The Messiah said this, You have heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone also uh, wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So this is more, the Messiah is trying to teach us here that there is better for you to not seek equal value, but for you to actually, if somebody is seeking something from you, you actually give more to them. This is sort of fascinating where it's like, you know, in a, in a fair's fair, equal society, that many of us would be fighting for or struggling to to have with from one brother, one uh, fellow community citizen with one another, that we would want something equal. The Messiah is teaching us, <coughs> excuse me, that we are to see a greater value than what we might assess with our own eyes. Remember what I said, judge not according to appearance, because on appearance level, you might see that it's like, okay, that's equal and that's equal, so everything's fair, right? It says no, but that's not what it said. Judge according to righteous judgment. Doing what is right. Because sometimes, the way that the Messiah brought up some of these scenarios, I always thought was fascinating. That if somebody wanted to sue you for your tunic, your tunic, like like their clothing, like so, there's some sort of covering... That this is almost like the reason why somebody would sue somebody for a tunic is because somebody needed the tunic, like that the clothing was needed. If you're looking at it that way, you might say, well, goodness, does that person need clothing? Is that person in so much need that they would have to file a lawsuit to sue something, somebody for a piece of clothing? And it's like, and now I know there's other interpretations and there's deeper interpretations to that. So maybe this is just too much of a surface level kind of idea. But if you do look at it this way, it's kind of interesting, kind of the way it turns out. That person is in need if they are trying to get a piece of clothing. And the Messiah says, give him your cloak as well. If this person is so at their end to, to have to sue you for your clothing, then you know what? Just give it to the guy. Because there's might be there might be some sort of need there that you don't even realize, or the one where it says you shall if some asks you to compels you to walk with him one mile, 
Why would somebody ask for you to accompany somebody for one mile? Well, in ancient times, the only reason that would be the case is that if you needed mutual protection, you needed some protection, you needed a witness, you needed somebody there with you because the journey might be too hard. And so the Messiah says, if somebody needs you to walk with them, one, walk with them, two, do more so that you actually do more for the person for the thing that they need. Not just looking at the surface level of what the person is asking for, but give a greater value to what is being asked of you. Because that's the way God sees it, and that's the way the Messiah sees it. Remember the widow's might. Remember, they're sitting there at the temple, and they see the old lady put in two little copper coins right there. And the Messiah said, that woman put in more than everybody else. And they're like, what are you talking about? We all saw what she put in. She put in the smallest amount of money that you could possibly put in. And the Messiah said, no, she put in more. And we know that's because she was poor and that that money was more valuable to her. And it was probably a greater percentage of her household budget that went into that offering than what anybody else walking in and putting some money in as they entered into the temple. And so we understand that, yes, she had a greater need. But ultimately what the Messiah sees, though, is the Messiah sees a greater value, not just what the appearance of the value is, not just what the value appears to be, but the deeper, more spiritual aspect of what it is worth. Now, this is a this is a concept that we actually need to learn in all of our lives in the case of what we see in our fellow brother, what we see in someone else or what, because you might see somebody and you might think that that person hasn't, you know, on surface, it's all like, I don't know if that person, do they really work hard? Do, do they, uh, we look at how they dress or how they carry themselves and all these things. And we, in our lives, we pass judgment on the appearance of things. And we sometimes see in other people not that much value. When we're talking about, you know, greatest in the kingdom, least in the kingdom, the Bible talks about those sort of things. And we might sit there and we might think in our own minds, hmm, maybe I can uh, play God for a second here. And I'm going to judge whether a certain person is great in the kingdom and another person is going to be least in the kingdom. And I'm going to pass that judgment. The problem with us doing that is that we are human beings, we are flawed, we are sinful by nature, and we tend to make mistakes all the time, especially when it comes to judging by appearance. Whenever somebody is trying to sell themselves to somebody else, we always mess this up. We never give a, the right value for ourselves when we're trying to present ourselves and our value to somebody else. We will always skew that scale too high or too low. Many people scale that scale too high and they carry themselves and they think that they are God's gift to this earth and they hold their value and their esteem much higher than they should. And so then they walk around all high and mighty as if they know what their value is and they're trying to sell themselves too high. We then have a rampant problem also, especially among young people that have been told many lies by the world and by the adversary that to tell you that your value is diminished, that you're not worth anything, and we have a great deal of people suffering with depression, that look in the mirror and they sell themselves too short. They say, man, I'm not, I'm not worth anything. I'm not worth anybody's time. Nobody really loves me. Nobody calls me, texts me. I don't really have many friends, if at all. 
And we have this systemic problem within human beings and society of never being able to sell ourselves with the appropriate value. That's because we are biased and we do not have the righteous ability to pass that judgment. What we need is we need people who do make righteous judgments to determine those things. That's why we have court cases and that's why we have judges to preside over these issues. But what we honestly need to do is we need to look to the righteous judge. We need to look to Elohim for what he sees. What does he see in the value of people and in the value of things? We always tend to see something different because of our sinful nature. We have to look to him. He is the righteous judge. And when it comes to, you know, anybody, you know, within a community, Many of us believers, we, we will say and we'll confess and we're like, you know what? The Lord knows the value of that person. The Lord is the one passes judgment. Even when somebody looks like they are a sinner and they are a blight on society, anybody who actually is really smart about this has to say and has to confess and say, look, uh, you know what? I'm not righteous enough to determine that. Only the Lord knows. Every time somebody, you know, when somebody passes away, you'll, you'll hear people ask the question. They're like, oh, well, were they saved or what was their, you know, anyway, some people might say, oh, yes, well, they had a great uh, prayer life and Christian life and they never missed church on Sunday. And then other people might say, well, it's like, ah, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they were saved, if they had a testimony. Might I recommend that we never pass that judgment whatsoever? I hate it when people ask that question. Because only the Lord knows. We're not going to get that answer here on earth. The Lord is the righteous judge that makes the judgment and the determination of the value of a person, the value of a soul, the value of what somebody did or accomplished in their life. God is the righteous judge who makes that determination. Let's turn to Mark chapter 7. And this is a, uh, this is a pretty famous passage as well. Talking very much, you know, there's a, a couple of quotes. There is a quote specifically back to our Torah portion here in this passage that I want to address. But this is still some of the same ideas of judging by appearance, looking at the surface level of what people do and act, and not looking deeper at what is truly in the heart of a person or heart of an individual, which is what God says we are to look to. Let me start here in Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 1. It says this, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, to the Messiah, having come to Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault for the Pharisees of all the Jews. Do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered him and said, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it was written? These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to him, the Messiah is still speaking, all too well 
you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. That's directly quoted from our Torah portion. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have uh, received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is where somebody has taken the commandments of God, and they have taken the surface level of how you could keep this commandment, and then saying, well, that's, that's done. The, the commandment has been kept. He's specifically referring to the honoring your, of your father and mother, which is from the Ten Commandments, and also the part where if he curses his father and mother, he shall be put to death. That is a commandment that, said that to, to all of Israel, that that is something that you cannot allow in your communities. To where somebody would, would curse their father and the mother and that that is a, 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 an offense punishable by death. But what he's referring to is he's referring to somebody who has and, and a group of people who have whitewashed the commandment to say that if I've given this gift or, or the, the, in accordance with tradition to my parents, well, then that commandment is now fulfilled and it now no longer matters what somebody does in the course of honoring their father or their mother. And he's quoting the Isaiah here directly at him as harsh as those words could be talking about people that honor the Lord with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. This is exactly where we look at the surface of what the commandments are. And if you keep the commandments of God, that must mean you obey the commandments of God and you have fulfilled the commandments of God. Have you? Absolutely not. Because if you have replaced those commandments with the traditions of men, and if your heart is turned away from the Lord, yet you do things on the surface... Doesn't the Lord see what's going on inside your heart? Doesn't God see a different value than you might assess that you have kept the commandments of God? That's exactly what is going on here. And that is exactly what the Messiah is speaking to directly to the, 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 what these men are doing when they basically are whitewashing the commandments with the traditions of men. Later on in the passage, he's talking about the, the, what somebody speaks and how somebody speaks is what defiles him. Not talking about foods and not talking about what man eats that makes him unclean. But he says this at verse 20, he said to him, what comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. It is not the judgment of appearances because somebody could be walking around looking like they are the most righteous of all people, keeping the commandments, looking like they keep the commandments, acting like they keep the commandments. But is that some sort of guarantee that we judge that that person is righteous? Anybody looking at the outside appearance might say, yes, that person is righteous. Yeah, what's going on inside the heart of that person? Because that person could still, they, they, they could fulfill all the traditions of men to walk according to the commandments. And then that person can simply just be an evil person filled with lewdness, fornications, murder in his thoughts, in his heart, coveting things that aren't his. Even though he doesn't act on those things, that's what's in the guy's heart. That's what the value of that person is. This is the deeper level of the Torah 
that we must have as believers in Yeshua the Messiah that Yeshua is trying to teach us. It's not that these command that the, the the spirit of the law or this looking deeper at the heart of a person supersedes or 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 uh, makes null and void the commandments that Moses gave us. But these are the descriptions by which deeper down below the surface of the commandments that are on the page, this is what we must follow. This is what has to be in our heart in the course of doing the commandments. This is what it is when God says that he will write his commandments on our heart, not just on tablets of stone. The tablets of stone are there for us to read and to learn, but then we must look inward at ourselves and keep those commandments with our heart, with the spirit of the law. That's the part that the Messiah sees. That's the part that God can look upon and he knows the value of what we do. He knows the value of the commandments that we follow and that we keep. And it's that deeper level on the inside is how he looks. Now, once again, we have to understand the, the, the value of all of these different things in these commandments. I do want to point out a couple of the other commandments that are in our Torah portion and how they relate to some other New Testament passages here. After going through all of the instructions, um, talking about responsibility for property and for um, uh, whether it be homicide, manslaughter, different things like that, there are some now moral Laws that are given to us here at the end of chapter 22. Talking about, of course, um, you know, certain areas where the sorceress, somebody who uh, is a witch among you, practicing witchcraft, shall be put to death. These are commandments that are also reiterated in the book of Leviticus, commanding the children of Israel to be holy. But there's one that I want to point out that needs to be addressed as well. And that was talking about the mistreatment to a stranger and affliction that comes upon a widow or an orphan. In chapter 22 at verse 21 of Exodus in our Torah portion, he says, you shall not mistreat a stranger nor oppress him for you are a stranger in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out, cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. This is this goes deeper into the idea about not afflicting those that have no protection for themselves. The Messiah addressed this also in Matthew chapter 18, talking about truly what he sees in the value of a child, because that what were things we might look at. And this is something that's a very big problem uh, in our society today when we have when we have the abortion problem that we have in our Western society is that we don't see value within a child or someone who is little among us within the community, because we might look and we might think the value of somebody is associated with what they're able to do or contribute to the community. And a child, obviously not very big, not very strong, can't contribute much. And so some might say that there is a lesser value of a child versus an adult. Well, Funny, interesting that the Messiah specifically talked about children here in Matthew chapter 18. He says this, at that time, the disciples came to Yeshua saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Yeshua called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Here we might look and we might see the, the Messiah here, I believe, is, is teaching the very principle of that affliction that might come upon a child who cannot even defend himself. That's absolutely in the Torah. That's in the commandments that the affliction shall not come against them because the wrath of God will become hot. And that we hit like the, the sword and, and God will put you to death if you cause harm to a child like that. That's what the, that's what the promise that God makes. And the Messiah takes it one step further to say the children are the example by which those who are great in the kingdom, the one who is simply humble, humble within the community. If they are if they are a believer in God, if they follow the commandments, if they honor their father and the mother, that that is that is exactly what you should aspire to be as somebody as small as a child within a community. And the Messiah points this out to them. And this is obviously a you know, uh, uh, fascinating to the disciples. It's interesting, the disciples, we always got to remember this, the disciples were young men themselves. There's no way that the disciples could have been older than in their 20s, perhaps, by any imagination of, of or chronology of how much longer they lived after the, uh, after the testimony of the Messiah, and that these were young men, and that Yeshua even teaches them to even look younger at the one who has a heart and the desire, that, that potential to believe in God, that is what is greatest in the kingdom. Once again, we're not judging upon appearances. We're not a judging upon this, the, the, some little guy that has no strength and, there's, and they're not very tall and, 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 and can't even reach something off the counter. And that that person is the greatest of the kingdom. That's what God sees. God sees the children and sees the value in them. When human beings left to their own devices even consider that to be less than in life or in society. And that's something we have to turn around. We have to turn around this idea of once again judging by appearances, not by their youth, not by their size, not by their strength, not by what they look like on the outside. But what does God see in each person? That is the valuation by which we must operate. First of all, with all the mistakes we make, I might suggest that we just set aside our own judgments, our own uh, judgments of, of what is right, what is wrong, what is fair, and all these things. And why don't we really just let the Lord handle some of these things sometimes? He's the one that is the righteous judge who makes these proper judgments. Because if we do not follow what God has said about some of these things, we are going to make the wrong judgment. That's what this, all of these commandments are all about, is judgments on how to operate within a community and, and to just live life. And we have to make sure we're always living life according to what God has called us to do. Now, some, of, some other commandments that come from our Torah portion, uh, talking about one, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. This one is very important in this day and age when we have certain people that speak ill of our president or the leaders of other countries. And we have a serious problem 
that if we somehow think that we are, can curse them without ramifications, the Bible has something to say about that. <coughs> Excuse me. We also have the commandment talking about in verse 2 of chapter 23 of Exodus, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn away, turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in a dispute. This is where we join with the majority. Join with the crowd. This is what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is saying. So that must be right, right? Absolutely not. It's a logical fallacy. It's called the bandwagon fallacy, where you don't just join with those that are committing horrible, terrible uh, sins just because the many are doing it does not make it right. You see, you see the image all the time on the Internet talking about that just because something is legal or everybody's doing it does not make it morally right. As many atrocities that have occurred in our lifetime were legal at the time to do, such as the Holocaust or uh, certain oppressions and civil rights issues. Certain things were legal at the time that did not make them right. Now, we see an example of this in our in uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 18. This is when the Messiah is standing before Pilate and he comes before Pilate. Now, I always love this this interchange. I always every time I read it, I almost see it feel like I, I see something different. or I'm trying to get the sense of Pilate's personality here, that he was a ruler among the people. The uh, the high priest, the priests bring the Messiah to Pilate and say, here, you judge him. You judge according to your laws, the Roman law, and judge him in accordance with that. Because they wanted to have their hands clean of whatever uh, uh, punishment they wanted to come upon the Messiah for all the things that he said that they considered to be blasphemous. And you see the Messiah talking to Pilate. There, I always see this as almost a very respectful interchange between Pilate and the Messiah. That the Messiah truly does show this, show this respect that it's all like, you know, it's like you, it's like I've been brought before you, you're the judge, you're the, what are you gonna do? He then starts asking questions and there's this inner, different interchange and he's like, so I hear that you're the king, king of the Jews. And then Messiah's like, are you speaking this because you learned this on your own or have others told you this? And so if there ever was this idea, that Pilate believed the words of what Messiah was saying, that he was a king when he's saying that he is a ruler, his kingdom is not of this earth, but of heavenly origin. And he's saying all these things. And Pilate, it's it's funny because Pilate doesn't immediately dispute this guy. He doesn't immediately say like, oh, this guy's crazy or anything like that. That's not recorded for us in scripture, though he might have thought that. But there's this respect between these two having this conversation. Once again, like I said, the, the cursing of a, of a ruler kind of thing, where somebody that the Messiah is not coming in and cursing him as a ruler of the people. That would be a sin, according to Torah. And so, so I see this commandment being played out in this interchange between the Messiah and with Pilate. But then immediately following that, when, he said, when, when Pilate then turns back to the Jews and he's saying, it's all like, well, it's now time for the Passover. You want me to release to you, this person, the king of the Jews, or maybe this other prisoner or whatever. And you see that all the people cry together and they say, no, not that man. We want a Barabbas to be freed. The other, uh, the robber, the other criminal that's being And you see the crowd joining in with the injustice that was taking place. This is the collapse of the civility 
of the commandments that are supposed to be within this Jewish people that follow the commandments of Moses. To not join in with a crowd to, for, for the sake of injustice. Just because everybody's crying out and doing it doesn't mean that it's right. Or that this man has come and it's like and they're calling him a king and, and some people and there's no respect for him as a teacher, as any position of authority. And that you see the collapse and the absolute failure of these commandments from our Torah portion being fulfilled. That is why these commandments are here. This is why you can see the example in the New Testament of these commandments not being fulfilled within this community and within this body. And this is the same group of Jews that are going to go into Roman captivity in a few short decades afterwards. This is the collapse of civil community lifestyle according to Torah playing out for us in the narrative of the New Testament. That's what these commandments are for. And we're so once again, like I said, supposed to go and look deeper into the commandments, truly what's in the hearts of the people, not just ones that follow the commandments with outward appearances. I want to conclude with this. Going back to our Torah portion in Exodus, there is a prophecy that is given to us in Exodus 23, beginning at verse 20, where God is speaking to Moses and he's saying, behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place that I've prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you in to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. This is a prophecy that can be nothing short of a prophecy of the Messiah that comes from our Torah portion. This prophecy of an angel, a messenger that is going to become before and could become to the children of Israel. And that it says that he will pardon transgressions twice in our New Testament in Mark 2 at verse 7 and in Luke 5 at verse 21. There it is an un, there's an understanding within the Jews in the, in the first century that only God can pardon sins. Only God can pardon the sins and of, of the breaking of the commandments. And that this prophecy here in our Torah portion points only to God and the Messiah. His ability to forgive us our sins and our transgressions. This is a prophecy from our Torah portion directly to the Messiah. Once again, the Messiah is throughout all of our Torah portions and in our psyche. In the commandments, you can see the fulfillment of commandments in the New Testament. And you can see the prophecies from the Torah pointing to the Messiah, the need for a Savior. And that they are all one. They are all one and together. It's the same narrative. It's the same story. And when the Messiah spoke and taught Torah, we must learn that we cannot separate the two when it comes to the commandments of God and then the teaching and the fulfillment of those commandments through the life of Yeshua the Messiah. Once again, we have more parallels that come from our Torah portions each and every week that I hope that we can bring out uh, every time that you join us here on Benai Shalom. TV. So once again, thank you for joining us once again. I pray that this message was a blessing to you. Now let us close out this service with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time once again to study your word and your instruction. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you for giving us your words, your commandments, your instructions, and Father, even examples of fulfillments and failures of those instructions. 
We thank you for the testimony and the writers of the New Testament and the, the records that we have, Lord, of what the Messiah said and what he did when he walked this earth. And Father, I thank you, Lord, for making the Torah alive and powerful, encouraging us, strengthening us in our most holy faith with the words of your son, Yeshua of Nazareth. We love you, bless you, and thank you. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit LLGive.com. Thank you and Shalom.